Would you look at Luke chapter 12? Spending our time today and moving around a little bit in here. Have you ever noticed that almost everyone admires Jesus' teaching, but hardly anyone follows it? Why is that? I think it may be because if we don't know who God is, we won't live the way Jesus taught. We won't dare. We can only do what Jesus told us to do because God is who Jesus told us he is. So sometimes people come to religion because they want to turn over a new leaf. They would be better if they stopped looking under leaves and they started looking at God. The power to change, the composure to relax, the courage to dare, they're all wrapped up in who he is. That's why so much of Jesus' teaching was intended to help people see what God is like, to know him. Ideas about God had accumulated in Judaism like barnacles on a ship's hull. Ideas that aren't worthy of God. And the truth is, those kind of ideas have accumulated in Christianity too, that are untrue and unworthy of God. And when our ideas are unworthy of God, our lives will be too. We can't think wrongly and act rightly, not for any length of time. Luke chapter 12 is a snapshot of how things work. In Luke 12, Jesus warns us against two enemies that threaten to steal our witness and rob us of our joy. He then shows us how these two things are responses to a single underlying problem. And finally, he shows us how knowing the truth about God, not in some abstract book learning way, but in everyday life experience, can solve the problem and free us to live authentically and gratefully. I, I want to say boldly right up front. God is the answer to your problems. God is the answer to your problems. Now let me tell you what that means and what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that God will get you out of your troubles. Your girlfriend will come back, your boss won't fire you. A miraculous source of income will appear out of nowhere like a raft in a flood to save you from your whelming debts. God is not a genie in a bottle who will grant you three wishes. God is not the answer to the problem you're in, but to the problem you are. Let me say that again. God is not the answer to the problem you're in, but to the problem you are. Until we see that, we'll be frustrated with God and we'll feel like the Christian life isn't working. Just this week, I had a woman tell me she was never going to church again and she didn't believe in Christianity because nobody would give her the money she thought she needed to get out of her problems. And it was clear to me this woman has never repented that is, she has never seen the truth about herself and about God in a way that changed the way she thinks. She still thinks her problem is that she has problems, but it's more serious than that. Her problem is that she is the problem, and that is equally true of you and me. But I hope we've seen that already. 
God is the answer to our problem the way a lock is the answer to a key. We're made for him. Without him, we put ourselves to all the wrong uses and life becomes a protracted series of soul-numbing disappointments. Now let's look at Luke chapter 12. It's part of Luke's journey narrative that follows Jesus through the more secluded parts of Galilee on his way to Jerusalem. Verse 1 tells us that thousands of people had gathered. Now had the Romans known about this, they certainly would have dispatched a company of soldiers and probably would have detained Jesus for questioning, at least. So it's likely they were away from any sounds of towns or any cities with a Roman presence. Even though thousands of people gathered, Jesus, this is verse 1, directs his teaching to his own disciples and lets everyone else listen in. He tells them, this is verse 1, be on your guard against the yeast better the leaven, they didn't have yeast like we have yeast, the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now this is the first of two warnings, the two warnings I mentioned earlier, both of which begin, be on your guard against, or in some versions, watch out for, beware of. See, Jesus saw hypocrisy as a threat to his people, his church, and his strategy for the kingdom of God. And his concern was warranted. Hypocrisy has caused untold damage. I can't tell you the number of times someone outside the church has told me they don't go to church because it is full of hypocrites. I've known people who doubt God and ignore Jesus because of the hypocrisy they saw in their parents and grandparents. I know of churches that have been torn apart after word got out that their pastor was having an affair. And the affair was bad enough, but the hypocrisy that went on for months and years was more damaging still. See, hypocrisy is communicable. Entire families can catch it. It spreads through offices, through the halls of Congress, and even through churches. Churches can be eaten up with hypocrisy like a cancer. Hypocrisy attacks, this may be the worst thing about hypocrisy, it attacks the soul's trust system. You know, a body has a circulatory system, digestive system, immune system, and more. And, and they're all susceptible to disease. The soul has a trust system. Hypocrisy compromises it. It lowers in an individual's ability to trust God, which leads to all kinds of misery in that person's life. Jesus was right to warn against this in the strongest terms. His second be on your guard against warning comes down in verse 15. Apparently, while he was speaking, he's talking to this large crowd of people. Someone in the crowd interrupted him by shouting out, Teacher! Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus' response came right away, must have taken the guy completely off guard. He said, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? This guy had a problem. He wanted Jesus to come out of his magic lamp and fix it. If you would have asked him what his problem was, he would have answered that his brother was his problem. And the unjust way his brother was executing his, his dad's estate wishes. 
he may have told you that it was only fair that he receive a greater share of the inheritance. And besides that, he needed it more than his brother. His brother didn't need it. He needed it. But Jesus knew it wasn't the, the, the problem this guy was in, but the problem he was that made him so unhappy. And I don't doubt that other people in the crowd realized that too. Then Jesus said to them, notice he, he's not just talking to the man, he's addressing the people who heard what the man said, but especially his disciples. Watch out, here's the second, be on your guard, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So here's the second, be on your guard. The first one against hypocrisy, the second one against greed. Greed can do as much damage as hypocrisy. We're not to take our eyes off of it. That's the idea in this warning. We mustn't allow greed in any of its form. For money, for books, for food, for recognition, for pleasures, we mustn't let it creep into our lives. Greed is, by its very nature, insatiable. William Barclay calls it the irresistible desire to have. It is the spirit in which a man is already, always ready to sacrifice his neighbor or his spouse to his own desires. The Greek word translated greed is made of two parts, one meaning having and the other more. It is a disease in which a person has an uncontrollable urge to acquire more. Like hypocrisy, it's contagious. It spreads through families, through neighborhoods, and even churches. And as the disease progresses, a person's soul becomes less and less capable of receiving nourishment from what it already possesses. That's why one of the chief symptoms of greed is lack of gratitude. Greedy people aren't thankful people. Another is a lack of satisfaction. They have so many things, but they don't enjoy them. Another is in the parable that Jesus gives. Is, and by the way, if you want to go more into this, there are Go Deep sheets out next to the CD. So when you leave this morning, there'll be a CD of this sermon, and there will be Go Deep sheets right next to it. The Go Deep sheets will take you into Luke 12 in a deeper way. So pick up one of those, or come to Go Deep on Wednesday nights at 6.45 at Bigby Coffee. Another symptom is in the parable that Jesus is going to give is a lack of room because a person is continually acquiring more. That's why storage units are going up all over the country all the time because our country has been impacted deeply by this thing. Another is a lack of faith because greed, like hypocrisy, attacks a person's trust system. And it does so by replacing God with some other object. That's why St. Paul calls the person infected, infected by greed an idolater. Greed also makes people gullible. The greedy person is a target, target for carn otters everywhere, whether financial, religious, or political. As this election cycle heats up, just pay attention to the ways candidates play on people's greed. Once your ear finds that pitch, you'll hear it again and again and again. And of course, they'll also play on fear. See, the one-two punch of fear and greed, that's no coincidence. 
Greed is related to fear, the way lightning and thunder are related. And now, I want you to note the wisdom of Jesus. He not only saw the existential threat that hypocrisy and greed posed to people and to the kingdom of God, he not only warned us against them, he understood that the diseases of hypocrisy and greed are related. They are a kind of aberrant response of the soul to fear. Greed and hypocrisy are a response to fear. Hypocrisy and greed are real problems. But they're a response to a deeper problem still, fear. Hypocrisy is the, the pathological response of a soul that is malfunctioning, brought on by the fear of what people think. Greed is the response of the soul to the fear of not having enough. Hypocrisy and greed are ways of self-medicating. They alleviate the fear problem for a while. But hypocrisy and greed are only temporary fixes. They're, they're stopgap measures. And unfortunately, the temporary fix makes the long-term solution less likely. If I didn't sleep last night, and I have a lot to do today, I may guzzle coffee and energy drinks all day long. That's a temporary fix. And then when I don't sleep tonight, because I've been guzzling coffee all day long, I may drink even more coffee and energy drinks tomorrow. And each time I do that, I get further away from the real solution. And that's what hypocrisy and greed do. They move us further and further from the real solution until we have trouble even finding it. The real solution, Jesus knew, is to deal appropriately with our fears. He uses the word fear five times in this passage and the word worry four more times. He knows that hypocrisy and greed will ravage our lives as long as fear, which is the underlying disorder, goes unchecked. And Jesus knows the only way to deal with fear is to think rightly about and relate rightly to God. Some of the ideas that attach themselves to religion in that day and this actually fed people's fears and so made hypocrisy and greed even more vigorous. Jesus knew a better way. Reveal the true God to people. Thinking rightly about God and relating rightly to him is the only way to deal with fear. And dealing with fear is the only way to cut off hypocrisy and greed from their source. Fear is the oxygen that keeps the fires of hypocrisy and greed burning. Fear goes away, hypocrisy and greed go away. Look at the fourfold repetition of the word fear. It's translated once as be afraid in the NIV, but in each instance, it's the same word in Greek. Look at that in verses 4 and 5. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom to fear, whom you should fear. Fear him who, after killing the body, has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, that seems paradoxical. Do not fear them. Instead, fear him. How is that going to help? And who is the him of verse 5? You know, every Jewish reader, every person listening to Jesus would know the him of verse 5. It's God. Well, how does that help? What good would it do to trade fear of people for fear of God? How would that make things any better? If we're going to wrap our minds around this, we must understand that the word fear 
has a long, rich history in Jewish thought. It's not unidimensional. The fear of God is not like the fear of people, a cringing, disabling thing. It doesn't hold us prisoner to anxiety. In fact, it has the opposite effect. The right, joyous, liberating fear of God releases us from the wrong, anxious, incapacitating fear of people. It makes us real, not fake, strong, not weak, wise, not foolish, for the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But that's not all. The fear of God isn't like the fear of people because God is not like people. Look at what Jesus tells us about God. These are verses six and seven. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. That's what this God is like. He doesn't forget a sparrow. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are numbered. He knows you and is that concerned about you. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. I'm sure Jesus chuckled as he said that. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. People haven't made up their minds about us. God has. People may change their minds about us. God will not. He will never forget us. When we have served his purpose, he won't cast us aside like people do. He is the God who loves sparrows and doesn't forget them, not even after they've fallen to the ground and died. He's the God who feeds ravens, and he knows you and loves you. That's why Jesus goes right on, remarkably, after saying, fear him, yes, fear him, and says in verse 7, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, because the God who knows everything considers you priceless. For the same reason, we needn't worry about having enough. We don't have to live a a grasping life of greed, fearing that we're not going to have enough. Jesus tells his apprentices not to worry, not to feed the greed and make it grow. They'll have clothes enough, food enough, because the God who takes care of sparrows and ravens and extravagantly clothes the wildflowers knows what we need. That's verse 30. When you know what he's like, You can stop worrying. You can be, these are Jesus' words, converted and become like a little child. You can stop the madcap, soul-crushing campaign to accumulate more. And you can actually start enjoying the things you have in a way that feeds your soul, not your disease. Jesus sources One truth in both his teaching on hypocrisy and his teaching on greed, the truth that sooner or later we all will meet God. The reason hypocrisy is a temporary fix and not a permanent one is that when we're done impressing people, we still have to deal with God. And hypocrisy doesn't work with him. Verse 2, there's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. God knows everything, everything, and you and I are headed to him. Jesus relies on the same truth in the parable of the rich fool when he's talking about greed. The man's greed drives him to amass more and more, but just when he thinks he has enough, his soul is required of him. He's headed to God. 
Jesus understood there's no such thing as a happy ending apart from God because there is no ending apart from God. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. You can't avoid him because life is a road that leads right to him. There's no detour that'll take you around him. There's no off-ramp before the end of the road. If that strikes you as bad news, hypocrisy and greed will seem like an acceptable alternative. And then you'll want to avoid going to God as long as possible, forever if you can manage it. But when we learn from Jesus who God is, the one who knows everything about us, that's verse two and three, but loves us anyways and considers us valuable, verse seven, when we know that we're headed to the God who never forgets a sparrow and remembers to feed the raven, to the God who knows what we need, verse 30, and wants to take care of us, the God who delights, verse 32, to give us the kingdom, the God who has already given us his son, then we'll wake up as if from a bad dream. We will repent that beautiful word, so full of promise and hope, and our lives will be transformed. Jesus wants to get us in touch with reality, with ultimate reality, and so free us from fear and the soul-wounding injuries it brings. He doesn't want to see his friends eaten by greed as if by a cancer or smothering under a mask of pretension. He doesn't want his people to be controlled by fear, period. But he knows that only by thinking rightly about and relating rightly to God can we be set free. So I go back to what I said before. God is the answer to your problems. So what can we do about this? We can inventory our lives for hypocrisy and greed. Jesus tells, be, tells us, be aware of them. Watch out for them. Be on your guard against. When you find them in yourself, what some people do is they just despair. They despise themselves and they give up in despair. Don't do that. When you find hypocrisy and greed in yourself, start looking around for the fear that underlies them. It will be there, guaranteed. Then take that fear and the wreck and ruin it's caused you to Jesus, and this is what he'll do. He will lead you to the only place where you can ever be free of it, to his Father. That's 1 Peter 1.18. He will lead you to his Father. Get to know the Father. Everything depends on it. All right, let's pray. God, I confess for myself. And these dear friends perhaps may confess for themselves that we have tried to find alternatives to you. 
We have been greedy. We've wanted more knowledge, more things, thinking that somehow that would make us be okay. We've been hypocritical. We've been so afraid of what people think of us and not even wondering what you think. But Lord, change all of that. Show us yourself. Give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you and show us yourself. Show us yourself in the face of the Christ of the cross. Lord, our lives depend on it. And we ask you for this great gift, not in our name, but in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.